what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds. I am Tasha. I am joined today by a really, really fun and cool guest. Um, I am talking with none other than Instagram's Anesthesia God. If you don't follow this page, you are missing out. And don't worry, I'll put the links in our show notes. Uh, but we're going to be talking with the AG today about human anesthesia, about becoming a CRNA, about how human anesthesia is different than veterinary anesthesia, why there's so many pay discrepancies, and actually what the education looks like. We're going to talk about favorite procedures. We're going to talk about drug pharmacology and what drug classes we love the best, uh, and just get into it. So hopefully you're along for the ride. Thanks so much for joining me. Cool. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this. All right, so I follow the Instagram page because, well, because I'm a big dork and I really love learning about anesthesia. I love anesthetic pharmacology. I love anesthesia equipment. Um, I think everybody pretty much who's listening to this podcast knows that I am a huge anesthesia nerd. I, I mean, I literally have a Mac and Miller tattooed on my forearms because I just think it's so cool. <laughs> um, but I came across your page and I think what is really cool is that at first, I thought, how much can we like learn? It has to be so different. And then I realized that there are a ton of similarities between human anesthesia and veterinary anesthesia from the equipment you're using all the way to the drugs you're using. And what's really interesting to me is that there are a lot of similarities, but then there's also a lot of differences as well. So can you explain for our listeners what a CRNA is and what it does? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a CRNA. Uh, it's a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Uh, we provide anesthesia services all over the world. Um, there are different models in which we work in. Um, I myself work in a care team model, which means there is an anesthesiologist somewhere in the building and they're covering three or four rooms, five rooms, um, all staffed with CRNAs. Um, and it's a collaborative you know, effort. We talk to them about the case, we come up with a plan together, um, and then we can pretty much go in the room, execute that case. And if there's issues uh, and we think we need help, we can call for help or we can call to just consult them on things. Um, some places are very hands-on, some places are more hands-off. So it's really dependent on the institution that you're working and um, sort of the model they have set up. There are other CRNAs in rural America that are doing stuff on their own, um, signing off charts, doing their billing on their own. Um, it really all depends on the state that you're in and, and what the laws are and how, the, how things go as far as um, supervision and things like that, to keep it real simple. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and as we were, we, you know, guys, we were talking before the podcast about kind of one of the differences being uh, the amount of education, schooling, certifications that you need to become a CRNA versus kind of what you need to perform, monitor, um, execute anesthetic cases in the veterinary world. Um, and so for those of you guys listening who might be joining us from the human anesthesia world in veterinary medicine, there are, I am a certified veterinary technician and I'm also a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia. So that means that um, after I got my bachelor's degree, I actually went back and did two years of schooling and got an associate's in veterinary technology. And I sat for the national exam to become a veterinary technician. And then after that, um, after five years of experience working in, in only anesthesia, um, then I applied for the VTS or veterinary technician specialist program in anesthesia, which is another thing you have to log your case reports. It's like 
two years worth of work, and then you have to sit for another national exam to prove that you're a veterinary technician specialist. Now, the caveat with this is that I'm a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia, so I'm pretty qualified to go in and do anesthetic cases. But what some people might not know is that technically in veterinary medicine to perform anesthesia or to, you know, monitor anesthetic cases, you don't have to technically have any schooling at all. You just have to have supervision from a veterinarian. So in some areas where they might not have access to a VTS in anesthesia or someone with a higher degree, technically there is there could be anybody monitoring that case. Now, that's why I always advocate that as pet owners, you should, before your pet has any kind of anesthetic procedure, you should ask, you know, what is the experience level and who will be the person monitoring my pet? while under anesthesia. Now, they're always going to be working with a veterinarian, but I do think that it's important for, you know, our clients and the pet owners to know who's going to be the one really monitoring that case while under anesthesia. So so you're, are you saying I can work at Target and then decide that I want to put cats and dogs to sleep and then just show up at some guy's office and put him to sleep and he watches after me? 100%. And yes, uh, I can guarantee that... <laughs> Uh, that that has happened. Um, I'm not going to name any. I definitely have have worked in some clinics where um, the week the week prior to me training an individual in anesthesia practices. Um, so I'm explaining how the anesthesia machine works and how inhalant moves through you know the system and a circle system versus a non breathing system and. I could tell it was really overwhelming for her, um, and you know, trying to talk to her about her background, and turned out that you know she hadn't gone to school, which again that happens very often in this country, um, but hadn't gone to school, and so I think I was just throwing some terms and some you know some ideas at her that that she wasn't ready for, which is totally fine. We we got to start small uh, when it comes to anesthesia, or start at the beginning, I guess I should say. But yes, I definitely have had instances where someone had worked at a diner before the week before and was now getting trained in you know high level anesthesia and monitoring surgical anesthesia. So it really runs the gamut in veterinary medicine, all the way from no experience. I was working at Target last week to technician specialist in anesthesia. I have, you know, eight years of schooling under my belt kind of thing. Wow. It's all over the place. Now, I would assume that it's not that way uh, for CRNAs or in anesthesia in the human in the human world. So for if somebody was wanted to be a CRNA, um, what kind of education do they need, like, what does the schooling look like? And what job experience do you need if this is something that you wanted to get into on the human side? So uh, I'll start by saying it is extremely competitive to get into CRNA school. Um, typically, depending on the size of the program, if you take a program with, a, let's say they have cohort sizes of 24 students, um, in the area where I am, typically, they will get up to three to 400 applicants for that, for those seats. Um, so it is extremely competitive and that's kind of where the experience comes from. And, you know, um, as far as getting into school, so you have to be a registered nurse. Um, you have to be actively working full-time in a critical care unit. So an ICU or a, a CT ICU or something of that status. And usually it used to be about a year, a year and a half experience, but now we're kind of bumping up to almost like two years experience. So if you want to look competitive, you have to have a super high GPA. Um, you have to work in a good unit for at least a couple of years, I would say. And and working in the unit for a couple of years does help with the schooling. 
And then you have to apply and interview and hopefully get a spot. And then the program itself is usually now is now it's they're all converted to doctoral programs. Um, so they are three year programs um, and you get a doctor in nursing practice and you become a CRNA. Wow. There are other roads. There's DNAP, which is doctor in nurse anesthesia practice. There are different you know degrees, but um, for the most part, that's how to get into school. Now, a lot of people will come at me for that, for saying that it's difficult, for saying it's competitive, because there is this big movement for um, these influencers on Instagram to say, like, you can get into CRNA school. I can help you. Just send me 600 bucks, and then we're going to oh. do a mock interview. And then, <laughs> you know, so there are those people out there. It is it is extremely challenging to get through the schooling, and it is, it's very rigorous. It's three straight years. There's no breaks you're doing, you can't work anymore. So you're giving up your job as an RN, which you're probably doing okay with that. Uh, and then you're going back really to the bottom of the barrel again from, you know, being the top of the person in your ICU to being, you know, a piece of dust on the OR floor that we're going to try to train. Um, but you get built up throughout the program and then you emerge a CRNA, which will probably bring you a lifetime of happiness. <laughs> I mean, so far, I've been pretty happy. Uh, but definitely sometimes when I'm watching um, some other like CRNAs or stuff, I do notice that, yes, maybe if we had made the choice to go to human med instead of veterinary medicine, the compensation would be a little bit different. And I assume that if you're going through a doctor's program and you're becoming a CRNA now, the, the compensation is pretty good. Do you graduate with a, a lot of school debt? Like, what's that like? You do. I mean, the yeah, the compensation is very good. I won't lie. Um, I think that is a really attractive thing. I, I don't think it's the reason to become a CRNA at all, but I think it is one of the perks of being a CRNA. Um, a lot of new grads come out and get sign-on bonuses and good incentives that will help them pay their loans right away, pretty much. Um, so the debt you incur is really, I think, just something temporary, which you have to, you know, incur while you're going through school. And then, you know, from there, you will quickly come out of that. I mean, the, it is a six, it's definitely a six figure salary. It's, it's in this area, the, if, if you want to talk numbers, I mean, a lot of the new grads are coming out in the 200 to 230, even 260 range a year. Wow. Okay. So for, for veterinary people, that means that their yearly salary is like 200 to $260,000. Um, and so for the people listening who might be coming in from the human side, just to give you a perspective from veterinary medicine, um, I am a BTS uh, in anesthesia. So I am, and I have uh, almost 17 years of experience under my belt in veterinary medicine. So I'm like at the top of my game um, per hour wise. And my hourly rate that I usually get is between $45 and $50 an hour. And I'm considered paid extremely well for my role. Um, most people in veterinary medicine or most technicians in veterinary medicine, certified veterinary technicians or technicians, they are usually making an average of anywhere between, you know, 22 and $30 an hour. That's like kind of the, the range for veterinary medicine, veterinary technicians. And you must be thinking, well, what about veterinarians? Because they have a doctorate, right? So they're doctors. They must be coming out making some decent money. Most veterinarians come out of school with student loan debt anywhere between two hundred dollars and $300,000 only to get starting salaries anywhere between eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. 
Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that blows my mind. We have some work to do in veterinary medicine. <laughs> I mean, I think the perception of um, human anesthesia people, as far as our perception of you guys, is is that. You know, we we have to put to put to sleep, you know, adults, and then maybe every now and then we'll get a peds case thrown at us, and we flip out and go, "Oh my god, it's peds! This is crazy." Um, I myself do a lot of peds, but in our world, peds is like a whole other world. But like, I can't imagine putting like a gecko to sleep or something. Like, I think it's wild that you guys, you know, put sheep's to sleep and, and all these species, and the, you're expected to know how to do. And and they seem very different from what I've seen on the vet pages. It's like, you know, taking care of intubating a sheep is obviously very different than a snake. Like, so it's wild to me that, um, that you guys aren't compensated for that, the vast amount of knowledge that you need. Yeah. It's wild to me too. Um, especially when I get to the end of the month and I'm like, how do I only have $17? <laughs> but you know, it's one of those that, you know, I, I definitely was, I'm a millennial. I was raised to like, you know, follow your passions. And I definitely did. And I, I can say that, you know, I really do love veterinary medicine. I love my job. I love anesthesia. I love pharmacology and all of that kind of stuff. I love the cases and looking at them like a puzzle. I like working together with anesthesiologists, you know, who maybe have done research in some other area that might, you know, teach me something new about, you know, dexmedetomidine or how it works or that kind of thing. So like talking about specific cases that we might do a whole bunch of them um, for you. I mean, again, you're working with one species here in human medicine, um, but you're probably working with a variety of procedures, correct? Um, for sure. When yeah, you become do. a CRNA, like let's say you're a CRNA now and you're going to your job, um, is each day a little different or do you kind of get into a niche where, you know, you're only doing cardiac anesthesia or you're only doing... No, I don't know. Orthopedic anesthesia, or does it really vary? You know, your your week. Do you have a variety of cases? It really depends on the kind of job that you're looking for. You can, you know, there isn't really specialty CRNA roles, but you can sort of put yourself into those roles. If I express to the place like, hey, I really love cardiac cases, or they have like a cardiac team, um, you know, you can join that team and just primarily do cardiac cases every day. Um, as you work in anesthesia, I think the people that you work around get the feel for things like, oh, I know um, Johnny likes OB, so we put Johnny in OB all the time, and Sarah really loves doing the robot room, so we put her in that room. Or, you know, I think if you're in general, you kind of get moved around a lot, but if there are specific things you like, they will tend to put you in those rooms more. Like, I was always a peds person. I've started out like wanting to do peds and started always did peds because it's a little more challenging. And I just like putting kids to sleep. They're a lot easier to move to, from the bed to the stretcher. But, um, you know, I, I think that – so th if there's a peds case available, they give me the peds case, you know, because a lot of the other serenades don't want to do peds. So okay. you can really kind of do what you want if you express what you like and you become proficient at it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, ours is similar in that I think that probably everybody I work with knows that I would love – like put me on the C-section. Like that's my favorite – thing to be on or maybe any like soft tissue abdominal procedure um, to do like a total hip or a TPLO. It's like, okay, we'll do it. You know, that's one of those, like maybe you guys have you guys that as hate, well. You guys where, hate ortho too? What's that? Do you guys hate, do you guys hate doing ortho yes. cases? <laughs> well, no, there are some people yeah, who yeah, love it, but for me, ortho is like, if you give me a, like, you know, a three-year-old German shepherd TPLO, then that's the day that like, I don't want to say that I don't have to use my brain, but 
you know what I mean? It's very different than a septic abdomen case where they're on a bunch of pressors and I have to have a CRI and like my lidocaine ready and all this stuff where my brain is constantly going and all those tabs are open. Um, for me, an ortho case. Yeah. See, as soon as you, as soon as you like, say like, boop. as soon as you say like doing a, uh, you know, an ortho case on a German Shepherd, it just becomes much cooler then, you know, when you say German Shepherd, like for us, it's like, oh, we're doing a redo hip with, you know, get blood in the room. And it's like, oh God. I mean, I love the ortho. I actually love ortho. I mean, a lot of the memes, you know, I, I come for ortho all the time because I think there is a, the, the ortho surgeons are, they're sort of, you know, um, they're a unique group and, and they are very, they're all very similar, so it, it's kind of comical to me. But I actually, I actually love work with them. They're a lot of fun to work with. Yeah, yeah, I like like again. I don't want to hate on ortho because I, well, I'm like, what case would I absolutely not want to be involved in? I mean, there's not a lot. I'm n- truth be told, it's not really a case. It's more of a species for me. Um, and people know that know me know like I'm not a rabbit person. Like you're not. I'm not the person to go to for rabbit anesthesia. I really dislike intubating them. I really dislike everything about rabbit anesthesia. Like give me a chicken, give me a sheep, give me a pig, give me the goat, (laughs) like give me the goat. Like I love goats, anesthesia, Um, cats, dogs, like even the reptiles. I would rather do a turtle than a rabbit anesthesia. But that's why, again, we have other technicians who they really, you know, love doing the rabbit stuff. So I'll be like, Mark, what's, get what's over up here. with the rat? Why, why is the rat? What's with the rabbits? Like what happens with the rabbits? Well, they, so they're not terrible to place a catheter in, but they're, they usually come in very scared. Um, the, their stress easily causes GI stasis. Like they have to be on lidocaine CRIs. Um, their catheterization is a little bit tricky depending on how big or how small they are. Um, and That's intubation the IV? with them. When you them. say that, you're talking about the IV? Yes. Yeah. Okay, IV okay. catheterization. Sorry. So we'll either place like a front leg cephalic or we'll place a, an IV catheter into their ear vein and deliver drugs that way. So they're also tricky to intubate. So for them – like that's the species that I like would love to have the scope on. There are some products that we have in veterinary medicine that mimic um, LMAs that people like to use for rabbits. So because they're hard to intubate with a regular tube, they've kind of developed these LMAs for rabbits. They have some for cats too, but I, I'm not a fan. But yes, yeah, so you can do an LMA in a rabbit and monitor them under scopes, anesthesia. Like, scopes to help you? What's do you have that? glide scopes? Do you have glide scopes? So very, no, because they're expensive and they're kind of thought of as kind of like frivolous. So not a lot of places have them. Now at a university that I I do some relief at, they were playing around with one Uh, a couple weeks ago. We had a lab where we were testing one out Uh, because sometimes you do have really difficult intubations, right? We can have some you know, cats that have a laryngeal mass and then that mass is really preventing us from getting our endo you know, our laryngoscope and our endotracheal tube in place and visualizing where we need to go. So for some difficult intubations, they will pull out a scope, but it's, it's very rare, very rare. Gotcha. So, but just based on your, your beams, I, I do get a sense that everybody in human anesthesia hates endoscopy. Why is this? <laughs> I think, I, I think I might've uh, brought out the hate of people in, in people, but um I think endo, I mean, I, I think endo is funny too. It's just another, it's another sort of topic that's easy to pick on. Like the orthopods are easy to pick on. Endo is really easy to pick on because you can find so many things wrong with endo. But um, 
So endo cases for us are in general, they're very, um, they're quick cases usually. So we usually just use straight propofol for them because it's, you know, as quickly as you have to put them to sleep, you have to sort of wake them up quickly and move them out of there. Um, that being said, it, it's the upper endoscopy EGDs are, are pretty challenging to just use propofol and get that scope down their throat. I mean, you have to walk that fine line of them being very deep without apnea because uh, you don't have an airway in place. And then you also are trying to avoid like laryngospasm and things like that. So you do have to, you know, keep them on the deeper side um, without uh, obviously overdoing it and then having apnea and, and you know, sitting there trying to um, ventilate them with a mask while they're, you know, waiting to do their scope. So I think there is um, a fine window and you have to find that sort of comfort zone in there where they can actually get that scope down. And then colonoscopy, not as challenging, but just like stinky and dirty right, and yeah, you know if they're guess, not cleaned out it's just a it. it's just a it's just a you know it's not a pleasant place to work but um you know some people really do love endo and then inpatient endoscopy which patients that are in the hospital coming down to endoscopy to have the procedure are usually really sick did i lose you uh-oh i think i took the show over by myself oh sorry it just cut out really quick uh-oh all right um, yeah, so I was saying, I think, you know, um, I don't know, I was talking about endo, something happened. Endo. Yeah. Terrible. So I have a question about endo though, cause something you said, it, it's sparking, um, something you're doing endo just on propofol. So usually that's the case. I mean, if they are just an outpatient upper or lower endoscopy, um, you know, you just use propofol, they're in and out of there real quick. Um, it does get complicated for inpatient endoscopy if they're doing something like ERCP or something like that, where they're going to be prone positioned uh, and they're going to be taking a long time and doing a lot of intervention. I, you know, a lot of times you'll intubate for those procedures, or if it's an emergent, you know, GI bleeder, um, you'll have to, you know, put them to sleep rapidly and all that and, and, you know, intubate. But for the most part, I mean, and, and both scenarios are bad for us. So it's like, you know, the sedation part kind of is, is tricky for us and, um, sometimes the patients are really sick and then you have the other, the other end of it where they're doing like ERCP for two hours and they're prone and blah, blah, blah. And you're off site yeah. in some end of world. So do you, do you guys not use Presidex together with your propofol for a case like that? I don't really, um, I, I don't really use Presidex that often for endoscopy. I think, um, for sometimes when people are going for a bariatric surgery, they will do an endoscopy preoperatively. Um, they're usually a little more challenged, sleep apnea and things like that. So um, I think there are people that are, are using dexmedetomidine in those situations. Um, but dexmedetomidine is, it's, I, I would say, I mean, it's been around for a while, but I think it's still kind of new in anesthesia. There's so much stuff that's not new in anesthesia. We do the same stuff all the time. So I think when something else comes out, I mean, the, this is one of the, like the hotter drugs right now is like, you know, um, the dexmedetomidine for us. So I think people are using it in different situations. A lot of people are using it for infusions in the operating room, things like that to as sort of like an adjunct to the anesthesia and seeing the benefits and, and, you know, the cardiovascular stability and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's interesting. We use, we use a ton of dexmedetomidine. Um, it's really, it is literally my favorite drug. Um, one of the highlights of my career was I went to the, um, the manufacturing factory of Orion pharmaceuticals in Helsinki, Finland to like do some work with them. And like, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing drug. Um, we use it so much in veterinary medicine, but I find that it's interesting because we use it all the time, except for in cases 
that have like heart murmurs or cardiac issues. Mm. And in human medicine, you guys use dexmedetomidine for cardiac procedures, correct? Yeah, well, it it is a very it it is very cardio stable. I, I would guess I can say. I mean, I I think it's there's there's not vasodilation that you get from propofol and, and other drugs like that. So I think you know, if anything, you'll see some bradycardia with it at, for the most part, and that's really it. And then it does offer. It's not a complete anesthetic, obviously, but it is a nice, you know, it's a way to, if you're going to run dexmedetomidine, you can run less gas, let's say, or something that you're, you know, if you're trying to reduce the dose of one drug, you can sort of add this drug. Um, and people are using it for, you know, in pediatrics, they're using it for emergence delirium. Like, I don't know if you know, but kids wake up totally crazy and bonkers. Um, some of them get this emergence delirium, which is a, a little more than just being bonkers. It really um, could have long-term effects on them. So they, um, they're using it to, you know, before they wake up for those cases to, to try to reduce that incidence of that emergence delirium. Yeah, we use it in a very similar way because I'm sure you might be surprised to know this, but uh, Labrador retrievers that haven't had great pain control during the procedure tend to wake up really bonkers. Um, and we'll give them like these micro doses of dexmedetomidine uh, in the post-operative period when they're like thrashing around their cage and stuff and they just need a little bit of like just a little bit of something. Usually Dex off. is my go-to. Um, along with ketamine, like we use a lot of ketamine. Um, and I would, I don't know how often are you guys using, do you guys use a lot of ketamine, uh, ketamine prior to your propofol, ketamine infusions? Yeah. I think, um, yeah, people, people in anesthesia love using ketamine. I think it is, um, I mean, I, I guess it's it's sort of been like this thing where it's like, yeah, ketamine is just the coolest drug ever to use for anesthesia. But um, because I think it's it's also used recreationally, so people think that that's cool that we use like some recreational drugs in the operating room, maybe, and we give them to patients. Not we don't use them ourselves, but um, yeah, there's you know they they have these like people say ketafol, which is like ketamine and propofol mixed. Mm -hmm. So pretty much you just get in synergy between the two drugs, and then you can reduce the dose of propofol if you add some ketamine to it. Um, it's really good as far as, um, chronic pain patients go. Uh, you know, if you have someone that is getting chronic opioids at home and then comes in for a procedure, I mean, you can load them with narcs all day and it doesn't even touch them because their, you know, receptors are so upregulated. Um, you can add ketamine, which really works well for them, chronic pain patients and, you know, um, people with chronic pain issues. And it's just a, uh, it's, it's overall, I think it's just a, it's a, to me, I find that more predictable than dexmedetomidine. So I, I think ketamine sort of like you give the dose and it, the drug does what it's supposed to do. Dexmedetomidine, I, I've kind of, it's fine, kind, kind of find like it's all over the place. Like sometimes it works really, really well. And then sometimes patients are jumping off the table. Oh yes. We still, we still have people, we still have, not people, we still have uh, dogs jumping off the table with dexmedetomidine and they can look like they're completely out and sedated. And then somebody like starts up the clippers and it makes a sound and then they're <laughs> awake and running away. Yeah. So one of the other uses for ketamine really is for procedures where you can't get an IV because someone is combative or, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, they're coming in for a dental procedure and they are, um, I want to use the politically correct term, um, but I, I don't even want to say anything because they, they all seem wrong to me. But someone that can't brush their own teeth basically has to come in and get uh, <laughs> dental work done, um, mentally challenged maybe. I don't know. But uh, so for them, sometimes if they are um, combative or anything like that, you might have to use what we call a ketamine dart, which is you give it IM and it takes effect very quickly and then you can get them in the operating room, mask them down more, or you can pop in an IV. Hmm. Interesting. 
Yes. So you mentioned something really quickly that I want to address as well, because in veterinary medicine, we've actually been trying to get away from and stop masking down our patients. Um, And this Mm. is because we like to have a, a, we would like to encourage people to do IM or IV pre-meds instead of just high dose gas anesthetic and masking them down and then having, you know, staff exposed to the you know, anesthetic gases over and over and over and over. Um, So there's kind of this push now to do more IV and IM sedations than place the IV catheters you can give your propofol and moving away from kind of our, our masking. But I also think that some of this is right. Like I can't tell the dog or the cat, Hey, just sit here for seven seconds and breathe this in. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So this is fascinating for me. Do you guys, so do you use SIVO? We use isofluorine and sevoflurane. For the mask inductions, you use sevo, though, right? So we, I will tell you that I haven't done a mask induction in probably 10 years. So I was going to say the, the seal is probably really hard to get on an animal because of the yes. hair and stuff. So there is a lot yes. of wasted anesthetic gases. Yes. Do you use nitrous? So there are some places that will use nitrous, but that's pretty rare in veterinary medicine. You guys know about the second gas effect and stuff when you do nitrous with... SIBO so I do know about it, but you know what? Maybe our listeners don't know about it. So what? Please explain <laughs> it to us. I, I mean, I like geeking out about this kind of stuff because it's fun. But yeah, I know uh, nitrous D- you isn't know used could, as much. But we could talk all day because I mean, I see we're at like the half hour mark, and I know you're like this show is pretty short. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can sit, literally sit here all day because every time I mention an animal, I want to talk more about it. But um, second gas effect is basically the um, you would do it on induction. I typically do like 70, 30 nitrous. And then if it's like a, you know, crazy kid who's not going to blow up the balloon and play games with me, um, just crank the SIVO to eight and have them breathe that in. And they will, it will actually help pull the gas in and get, get it on board quicker with the nitrous. And then usually we take nitrous off right away after that, because you don't want the other effects of nitrous. Like, you know, it causes post-op nausea, vomiting, things like that. It makes closed areas with, air filled areas fill up more and, and, you know, cups get bigger and guts get swollen, things like that. <laughs> but it is good for induction. Um, so that second gas effects really make, makes the, you know, um, SIVO, the concentration rise much faster and, and, you know, you get equilibrium in the brain and they go to sleep a lot quicker. Yeah. A lot of our anesthesia machines that we buy in veterinary medicine are secondhand from um, human hospitals. And so a lot of our anesthetic machines will come with the dial for nitrous. Um, like they all have a nitrous dial, but nobody uses nitrous in veterinary medicine. Another interesting thing, um, because I used to work in research, I used to work in uh, research at a, at a children's hospital. And, you know, all of those machines that I was using were uh, a medical air oxygen blend. But in veterinary medicine, we don't use medical air. In research, we do. But in like regular veterinary medicine, we don't use medical air. Everything is 100% oxygen. Oh, really? As your carrier gas. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We so. have like pipe. We have the hospitals usually have the pipeline coming into the machine from the hospital that, that has, you know, coming from the wall with nitrous. So it's pretty much. And then we have a tank on the back of each machine. So nitrous is pretty much. I, although it's like fallen out of use, a lot of people aren't using it because of the side effects, um, which I have my own argument about that, but because uh, I still do use it. I think it's, I mean, for me, if I have someone who's a 75-year-old person who's not tolerating the vasodilation from the, the inhalation agent, I will just put that agent down to half of MAC and I will add nitrous to it. 
and someone of that age and, you know, sex, a male 75 year old guy who is smoking his brains out is never going to get post-op nausea vomiting. So I could run nitrous on that guy for, you know, the whole case and use half of the amount of inhalation agent, which is really causing all the vasodilation and the hypotension and the effects that I don't want. So I still mm-hmm. think there is a place for it in the OR. No, that's really interesting because we are always, you know, we're always looking at MAC and battling hypotension as well. Um, and again, most of the time we're running concurrent, like we might run a fentanyl CRI or we might run a lidocaine CRI or ketamine CRI or rely more on our regional anesthesia to get that inhalant down as low as possible. So like, you know, if I have a really good local block, if I have like did my fem blocks for a TPLO case and... Then I have them also, you know, on maybe I give them methadone as a pre-med. I have some really solid blocks. I, I hope that I can have that SIVO at like 1.5%. Like really, that's that's my goal. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the the CRI and all these like quick little terms. You say we we say like, you know, continuous infusions, but I'm, I'm getting the whole vibe and what you're saying. But I, I just think it's cool the way it kind of rolls off your tongue. What kind of muscle relaxants do you guys use? Ooh, I do love using muscle relaxers. So we really, we don't use them very often. Um, Usually if you're using them, you're using them in optho um, because under anesthesia, we, right? So we want the the eyes to be central and forward. And so under anesthesia, um, we'll give them usually like cisatricarium is probably the most common one that we're using. And cool. we are using it because it's short acting. Um, it, that is kind of a fun one because I love showing people it, showing them and then, you know, how to take them. Because most of the time in, in veterinary anesthesia, we will keep our patients spontaneously breathing. We don't automatically throw them on the ventilator unless they, unless their end title is telling me, hey, I need support. Other than that, we, we won't put them on the ventilator. We like to keep them spontaneous. But, you know, once they get on the muscle relaxers, then we can have the conversation about putting them on the ventilator and how to calculate tidal volume and how to look at peak inspiratory pressure and how to run, you know, the train of four. Do you guys do that as well? Do you run a, like if you use muscle relaxers, do you use the like train of four to check for um, yeah. signals coming back? Yeah. So we, we do train of four. It's that's kind of fallen out of practice with the, um, with the, now the use of Sugamidex as a reversal agent for us. Oh, right. Yeah. We don't, we, I think maybe it's a cost issue, but we don't. It is expensive for us too, that. but, but yeah, I mean, I, I still monitor train of four. I still train my resident students to, to use train of four, because I think that you should, you should always know as you know, where you are as far as your dosing and, and how much mus- muscle relaxant you need. It's really interesting that, so we don't use it for eye cases. Eye cases are usually done under, um, done under a block with a minimal sedation and then just a um, retrobulbar block or, or, you know, a peribulbar block. But um, we do use it for like most other cases, like any abdominal cases where they need muscle relaxation to get into the abdomen or, you know, and there's, you know, there's the running joke always through the memes, like the surgeon asks for more relaxation whenever they're struggling. And it's always like, we know that they're paralyzed, but we're like, yeah, we gave more and we give saline, you know? Um, (laughs) So there's, there's all these jokes about that because the surgeon always is asking for muscle relaxation pretty much. It seems like, and like, that's the problem, you know, that's why they can't get the, this part of the colon out or something. Oh, that's really interesting because I would say in veterinary medicine, unless you're at university or working, you know, with somebody at specialist level, you're not doing muscle relaxers. Um, 
But I mean, do you every reverse once in a them while, if you do them? If, if you do use that? them, do you re- do you reverse them if you do use them? Very rarely. You just let them wear off. Yeah. Yep. Most of the time, again, if I'm using like a cystetricarium, it's giving me 30, 40 minutes anyway, right? And so I'm in that OR for maybe three hours. So it's it's worn off and we're using like our train of four to, to double check everything. Um, I do like it though every once in a while for like a thoracotomy. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, for us, we use, I mean, primarily I use rocuronium. But oh, we nice, do yeah. reserve, we do use cystostrocurium for patients that have renal issues or renal failure and things like that because the way they're eliminated, mm-hmm. um, we do tend to use cyst for those. But cyst tends to be a little bit more expensive for us and rock works super fast. We love to get them rocked and get them intubated. So, I mean, yeah, I think that um, actually the, the episode that we're currently editing right now uh, of Anesthesia Nerds podcast is on neuromuscular blocking agents because not a lot of people understand how they work, know when to utilize them in veterinary medicine. Um, and yeah, like every once in a while, if we're doing a, a lateral thoracotomy and we have a patient that just seems like really reactive, we'll give a little bit of, you know, like sneak a little neuromuscular blocking agent in there just to like smooth everything over. Yeah. Anybody, anybody acts up with us, they get a, they get a tube and they get paralyzed. Oh yeah. It. Which is like, ter- <laughs> it's just terrifying in my mind. I'm actually extremely scared of having anesthesia myself. Like I love it and everything, but I'm also really terrified. And really it's just the intubation that I'm terrified of, which I know I won't probably even be conscious for, but I'm just terrified that one day I will need anesthesia and I'll have to be intubated. And it's like, you look, you look like an easy intubation. I'm looking on the screen here. It looks like you would not be. Yeah. You got it. You got a great chin. You'll be fine. <laughs> now, What size, like an average ad- adult, what size endotracheal tube are you guys like rocking? Like a, like. Usually for like um, a, fe- a female, like seven, 7.5. And then for a male, like an eight. You okay. know, it really depends on it depends on their size, but um, it depends on the procedure too. If so, if I'm doing like something where they're going to be in steep Trendelenburg, and I know ventilation is going to be an issue with my peak pressures and stuff, I'll, I'll tend to use something with a bigger radius, like a seven point five, maybe if it's if it's a female, um, just just to you know reduce my peak pressures during the procedure because everything's going to be sort of coming down on that diaphragm and causing issues with ventilation. But yeah, typically seven and a, seven or an eight. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. We, for most of like, like a Labrador would probably be a 10 and a half, maybe an 11. Most of our cats are like between four and five. So I have, I have, um, you know, uh, well, you know, my page, there's a lot of talk about Mac versus Miller. Right. And then I had posted a, a picture of you about the podcast and they had made, so they saw that you had the, the tattoos of both blades and they were like, yeah, they were like, Dude, what's up with this chick? Like, which way is she going with this? Is she is she gonna be is she Mac or is she Miller? Like, we need to know. Like, why has she got both of them? Like, you, you got to pick a team almost. With, with oh, a, do you with have to pick a human. team? I think you know it's like you know it's like the Android versus Mac you know Mac computer thing. It's like these people are very very passionate about what blade they use. Yeah. Okay. So like Desert Island, if you're like Tasha, you have to go with just one. It's probably going to be a Macintosh because. I feel like it's more versatile. Now, that being said, I do a lot of brachycephalic patients, which means they have like a smaller, rounder head. And I feel like when you have that smaller, rounder head, right, like with uh, non-human primates or cats or French bulldogs, then Mm. the curve of that Mac, it just makes everything, I can visualize everything so much nicer. 
Now, if I have a German Shepherd or a Doberman, right, or something with that long, flat snout, then the Miller becomes more valuable. Got you. And when you're using the Mac, you're doing you're getting in the molecular, like you're doing indirect view, and then the Miller you're oh, doing I'm direct getting view. Getting in there, babe. Yes. All right, cool. Now that's awesome. Getting in there. Right. Which is a big thing. And I think that like why I like teaching people um, how to use the laryngoscope. And I am a big fan of laryngoscopes uh, because in some places that I have went in to train staff, um, they're like, oh no, we don't need a laryngoscope. We'll just use like basically like a light, like they'll just shine a a flashlight and then they'll blind put the tube in. Now, sometimes it works and it's fine, but there are also times when you get the patient under anesthesia and you're like, well, shit, why do they keep reacting to anesthetic? Oh, it's because all the inhaling gas is going in, you know, into their esophagus and in their stomach. They goosed it. We say they goosed it. Yeah, we, we, they did. So I'm always like a fan of telling people, please use the tools that were designed to help you visualize where you're supposed to go. You know, um, there are some veterinary practices that don't utilize end um, title CO2 monitoring. I, that's what I was going to, I was going to ask that because I was, you know, we, we sit there, basically put the tube in and just stare at the end title CO2 and wait, you know, like, where is this end title CO2? And there's usually a little delay, but we hinge everything on that end title CO2. So I was going to ask you, do you guys typically monitor that for all your cases? Yes, it's becoming much more common. Um, about 10 years ago, I would say that maybe only half of veterinary practices had end-tidal CO2 monitoring. Now, almost all of our multi-parameter monitors do include end-tidal CO2. So I do think a lot more people are getting comfortable with end-tidal CO2, how to read the waveform, what numbers to look for, you know, when to start positive pressure ventilation, all of that kind of thing. So yes, we are we are big fans of CO2 in this world. I'm like, now we're, I'm kind of moving towards, you know, getting people to do invasive blood pressure monitoring. So that's kind of like the, the more kind of gold standard now. Can I, can we get an art line in this cat to really see what's going on with them <laughs> hemodynamically? That's awesome. So it's fun. Yeah, there's a lot of fun. Well, I'm not going to take up more of your time. I feel like I could keep talking for so long because it's, Dude, it's just have so me, interesting. You got to have me on again and we just start right with the with the talk about like, what do you use and what am I using? Like, because I yes, think that, yeah, that like, got okay, so much fun. We're about to do a liver lobectomy. What drugs are you using? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That'd be I so I don't cool. even know if you guys do liver lobectomies in human Yeah, medicine, sure. But <laughs> sure. It's but a yeah. bloody mess. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Those are fun ones. I actually really like anything abdominal, soft tissue. I mean, although I do like going into the, the thorax as well. We do really low low CVP. Do you guys do CVP monitoring, central venous so, pressure? No, it's kind of fallen out of favor. They were doing it for a while, but they're not doing it anymore. <laughs> it's, it's so easy to get you to nerd out. Like I knew just saying CVP was going to like trigger you into like, wait, what do you guys do? So we yeah. do that for liver. We Obviously, liver is a big reservoir. We don't want to fill it up. So we run them extremely dry the entire case with a low CVP. But the caveat is if you're going to do that, you need blood in the room in a cooler usually because once they start bleeding, you're sort of behind now. So you have to rapidly catch up with a, you know, a huge neckline and and blood and things like that. But yeah, we could nerd out for sure. If you want ever, I'll come back. Oh, I mean, definitely. We have to like, we have to, we have to keep this going. So yes. Um, But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and letting people know kind of, again, how similar it is, but then also maybe we've inspired some people, you know, to maybe look at going to become a CRNA uh, in their future. Or maybe there's some CRNA out there going, I really want to intubate a rabbit and they want oh, to no, come, they all, come to they our all side. Do. 
They all do. Trust me. They, every time I post something from vet anesthesia and I never intended on vet anesthesia thing, I just felt like the anesthesia world was so boring. We had no new things happening all the time that let's look at, let's look at what other people are doing. And they just, the vet stuff is always really hot on my page for me, but they all like, how do I get to do this? I want to, can I just like shadow one and hang out with one all day and just like watch what they do. And the people, uh, uh, my people are fascinated by your people. Let's just say that. Oh, well, we'll have to, like, we should do, we should do, like, a meetup someday. Like, you know, take over a beer garden, vet anesthesia, human anesthesia. I'm just like, yeah. No, this was awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm going to promote this, too, to, like, get, to hopefully get some listeners on here, and we can hopefully get to keep this going. This would be great. Great. That'd be awesome. 